All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your grace and mercy in Christ, Lord, uh, that you have brought us together, uh, that you have brought, brought us into your body as, uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, what a joy that is, Lord. Uh, what a privilege. And uh, yet, as we talked about, there's also a responsibility to, uh, to warn others, to tell others of, of, uh, of judgment coming, but also of the hope that we have and the, and the only hope that there is for the world, which is Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, this class uh, would be helpful to us in talking to others who maybe are, are uh, believing things that aren't according to the Scripture, and that we would do so with uh, grace, and uh, Lord, with, uh, with an eye to um, winning people to you and, uh, and to the truth, uh, not to argue, not to uh, beat somebody in an argument, or uh, whatever it may be, but that the goal would be, uh, would be to lovingly uh, proclaim the gospel with the hope that uh, you would bring people to you. Uh, so, Lord, we pray that you would use this time to edify us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so number two. The, so we're, we're arguing that the miraculous gifts served a specific purpose during specific times. And the key passage we want to start with is Ephesians 2, uh, 18 to 20. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to have them out. We're going to go all over the place um, today which is one of the things I really enjoy about this part where we get to go to the scripture a lot instead of talking about uh, you know, exploring history and erroneous beliefs of other religions. It's nice to be in the Bible um, for a lot. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2 to start with 18 to 21. And this passage uh, is what we would say is a foundational statement about the church and because uh, it talks about the foundation of the church. So here, Ephesians 2, 18 to 21 says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And what we want to highlight here in particular is that the apostles and prophets are called the foundation of the church here, and Jesus, the cornerstone of that, of the foundation, right? Um, so that's what this says. Uh, Richard B. Gaffin Jr. notes of the, on this that in any construction project, the foundation comes at the beginning, and it does not have to be relayed repeatedly. The apostles and prophets belong to the period of the foundation. In other words... By the divine architect's design, the presence of apostles and prophets in the history of the church is temporary. So the case we would make is that what he just said there, that the existence of apostles and prophets was temporary for a specific purpose, which was the building of the church, okay, the beginning of the church. Once you lay a foundation, if you, when you're building something, you lay a foundation, you don't continue to lay the foundation. The foundation is built, it's there, you build the building on the foundation, but you don't redo the foundation uh, unless it's broken, but that's obviously not the case here. So that is, that's going to be our argument here. Uh, Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation. He laid down his life, right? He rose again, and the apostles and prophets are said here to be the foundation. How so? Well, obviously, Christ's work is not lacking anything, right? But what is lacking or what needed to happen was that witness of what Christ had done needed to go out. Okay, so witness had to come out about Christ's work and how we can come to know him and become part of the church. So witness needs to go out to the world. The apostles and prophets were God's authorized witnesses appointed by Christ himself to teach the truth about his redemptive work. Okay, so, so the question then becomes, all right, so if apostles and prophets are the people that God has designated to go out and to witness about Christ, how do we know if they're telling us the truth? Like even today, we could have people, we do have people running around saying they're apostles and prophets, right? And, you know, that's, that's been the case before. There's always, there have always been false teachers, false prophets. So how do you know? If someone is actually an apostle or a prophet from God, anyone could make that claim and could deceive you. So there had to be a way to authenticate or to verify that an apostle or a prophet was really from God. Okay, that, that's, that's our argument here. And our argument is that the miraculous gifts are what God used to do that. 
Okay, God used the miraculous gifts to attest that these people were his messengers, that the message they brought was from him. And thus their teachings and their writings were from God. Okay, so let's look through and just see. So, so what, what the argument I'm making is when you read these miraculous gifts, there's a point that it's accomplishing. We're not just doing it. I mean, there's, there's a number of points. I mean, one of the points is God is glorified and people look at it and are amazed. But there's one of the key points is that we're arguing that it is used to show that this person is from God and that that God is the true God. Right? And therefore, what he says, when he says, God says that that's what God says, that he's actually bringing an authentic message from God. And so we're going to look at, in particular, the people that we mentioned last time, Moses and Elijah and Elisha, and then look at Christ and the apostles. So let's start with Moses, Exodus 4. So just keep in your mind, the argument we're making is that these signs are proving that apostles and prophets come from God. It's proving that to people who might question it or not be sure. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. So you know Exodus 3, the burning bush, right? God reveals himself to Moses and calls him to uh, go to Egypt. And then Moses says, all right, let's go, right? Well, not exactly. (laughs) Moses is a little reluctant initially, right? So we read in chapter 4, Moses answered and he said, uh, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So basically, they're going to question me and they're not going to believe that I came from you. And that you told me this and that you sent me. They're not going to believe me. And so what does the Lord say? The Lord says, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand out and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. And then look what he says. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So what's the point of that miracle? It is to show that God actually sent Moses. Right? This is to show he's actually coming from God to them. Um, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. He put it back inside. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs who listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So we see that he gave these signs to Moses to authenticate that Moses was being sent from God. Okay, now I'm not saying that's the only purpose ever. Because again, as you go through all of the plagues and the things that God did, he was also you know, showing that he was the true God as opposed to all the Egyptian gods. And he was judging Egypt and, and, and other things going on. But... The first thing we're seeing here with the first signs is, hey, the purpose of this is to show that Moses is from God. Okay, He's coming from God. God enabled Moses to do these signs to prove that God had sent him. And we could go through other ones. I'm not going to go through too many uh, for Moses, but we, let's do one more if we jump to Numbers 16. Because again, the God, uh, did God send Moses becomes the question here. As a rebellion rises against Moses and Aaron called the Korah Rebellion in Numbers 16, Moses and Aaron's authority is challenged in Numbers 16. And there's these others who come up and they would say, hey, well, why, why should you be leading? We should be leading. And there's, there's an argument about who should be leading. So they're basically questioning, um, you know, are these people really from God? Why, why can't we lead just as well as them? And, uh, and what happens? Well, God does a miraculous sign to demonstrate, again, that Moses is the one. Moses and Aaron are the ones he's chosen. So let's look at Numbers 16, starting on verse 25. Number 16, verse 25. It says, Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. 
And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And then that's what God does. He opens up the ground. He swallows them up. And it clearly shows these are not the people that God has chosen to lead Israel. Okay, he's chosen Moses and Aaron. And he's demonstrating that with miraculous signs. Uh, let's turn to Elijah. 1 Kings 17, 9 to 24. I don't know if we have to read all of that. Well, yeah, I don't know that we have to read the whole thing. That's a lot to read. But uh, 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 9. So we have the the widow. uh, We have the flour and the oil, right? And then you keep going, uh, 17, we start with the son dies, right? The son of the widow dies. And then um, Elijah raises the son, right? Or God raises the son through Elijah. The child comes back to life. And then Elijah says, see, your son lives. And then here's the conclusion. What's the conclusion that comes out of Elijah raising her son? The woman said to Elijah, verse 24, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So Moses, oh, not Moses, Elijah's miraculous healing, miraculous resurrection of this child, what's her conclusion? Her conclusion is this proves to me that you are from God and that what you speak is what God puts in your mouth. You're God's messenger. It proves that to her. That's what it accomplishes. Um, yeah, we can also note uh, in 2 Kings 10, these, uh, these guys come to Elijah. He calls down fire and kills them in these groups of 50s. But it's interesting because he, he said, when he does that, he says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And he calls down fire. But his statement is, if I am a man of God. And so when this fire comes down from heaven and it wipes out these soldiers, it is indeed showing he is a man of God, right? If I'm a man of God, this is going to happen. And then it happens. Shows he's a man of God. Uh, we could look to Elisha. Um, Elisha raised the Shunammite's son. Um, Elisha also, we hear, we, you know, the, maybe the best known one is the story of Naaman, the Syrian, right? Who gets healed from leprosy. In 2 Kings 5... Two and three, it says the uh, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were here with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so this girl knows by the miracles and by what has happened through Elisha that he is a prophet. He's a genuine prophet of God. She passes that word along, knowing that to be true. And then Naaman comes and he ends up getting healed, right? And then he acknowledges God is the true God. Uh, After he's healed, 2 Kings 5.15, he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and he stood before Elisha. He said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So now accept a present from your servant. So not only that people knew that Elisha was a man of God, so this girl knew and could pass the word on to Naaman, the word spread, but then Naaman saw that. And again, that shows not only that he's a man of God, but it also shows that God is the true God, right? Okay, let's look at Jesus. Jesus, uh, the miracles that Jesus did. Okay, let's start in Acts 2.22. Uh, this is more of a general statement, but this is a statement that tells you what the works and signs and wonders were intended to do. Okay, Acts 2.22. 
This is uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, right? So he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. So there's that word, attested to you by God. It means God's showing, God's authenticating is another word you could use. He's, he's vouching for him. He's demonstrating that he's from God. So Jesus, a man attested to you by God. Well, how did God attest to him? How did God show that Jesus was from him? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So it's showing that Jesus was from God. And of course, as we know, Jesus is God. Uh, Acts 10, 38 So now this is Peter, and Peter in 10.38 talks about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so it's demonstrating that God was with him. How could he do these things? Because God is with him, and he is God, as as they learn uh, as well. Um, Matthew 12, the uh, demon-oppressed man, just a quick note on that one, um, uh, blind and mute man, Jesus heals him, and then the people are amazed, what's their response? Can this be the son of David? So the response when they see what Jesus is doing is to start thinking, oh, is this the Messiah from God? Okay, that's what they're, the connection that they're making. Is he the Messiah? Is he the son of David that was promised? Uh, because that's the connection, coming from God, able to do these miracles. Uh, John 2.11, uh, Jesus did his first uh, sign at Cana in Galilee, John 2.11. Then it says, and his disciples believed in him. He did the miracle and they believed. John 2.23 He's in Jerusalem. John 2.23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Uh, John 3.1-2. Nicodemus comes along. What does Nicodemus say to him? You guys remember? He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, but he doesn't just say that. What does he, he says something else very important. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. How does he know Jesus is, is from God? Because no one can do these signs unless God were with him. Okay. Um, John six fourteen. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Probably referring to Deuteronomy 18 and the promise of a prophet who would be like Moses but greater. So John 6, 14, they saw the sign and they said, this is the prophet who was promised. They, re- they make that connection. John seven thirty one. yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? John ten twenty five. John 10, 25, Jesus says here, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. The works bear witness about him, who he is. Uh, 10, 37, keep going in that same, par- same uh, encounter. 10, 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then uh, one more, John 20. I guess we could say this isn't necessarily directly the signs, but it's the recording of the signs by John. John 20, 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's recording the signs so that you may believe um, 
That's the goal. That's the purpose, right? So that you believe who he is and, of, of course, repent and, come to, and understand and believe that he is, uh, he is God the Son, right? Uh, so the signs and wonders prove that Jesus was from God and he was who he claimed to be. God attested to him with mighty works and wonders and signs, as the scripture says. Uh, what about the apostles and the disciples? Uh, let's go to Romans 15. This is Paul writing about his ministry. Uh, we could start at 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Okay, so he's talking about what Christ has accomplished through him and his ministry by the power of signs and wonders that Gentiles might come to obedience. In other words, they might actually come to faith and obey the gospel. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. This is interesting because it relates to when people claim to be apostles. Uh, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. So those are signs of an apostle. What does that mean? It means that that they're signs to show that the person's actually an apostle. Okay, so those, the miracles are signs that an apostle is truly an apostle. Um, and then we see uh, Acts 8, 6. Philip, crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So it was causing them to hear what he had to say. They saw the signs. They recognized, oh, this, guy, this man is from God. We better, let's listen to what he has to say. So they listened because of the signs that were performed. It caused people to listen. It showed that he was from God, and therefore what he was teaching was from God. Uh, MacArthur and Mayhew, that book I mentioned, they summarize as follows. They say, such extraordinary gifts were necessary to validate that the church was a true work of God and to authenticate the apostles as his chosen messengers. Signs and wonders demonstrated that God himself affirmed the gospel they proclaimed. And we see in Hebrews 2, 3 and 4, again, we see those kinds of words about signs and wonders. It says, uh, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So again, he's using signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts to witness to who Christ is and to the truth of the gospel. Uh, Justin Holcomb explains, miracles are often significant because they serve a larger purpose in God's redemptive plan, testifying to the authenticity of God's messengers who bring his revelation to humanity. Miracles authenticate God's message and his messenger. Okay, so that's the, the beginning. So the argument is the, the apostles and the prophets, they were sent from God and he would send these accompanying signs to show that they were from him. And in particular times where it was particularly important, not throughout all history. So there was a, there was a very significant time with Moses that he was creating the nation of Israel and bringing them out to be his special people. And then you had, the, had, had Elisha and Elijah as well during their ministries as prophets. And then, of course, Jesus coming with, uh, with, uh, with the apostles and the disciples following. And then them writing the New Testament. Right? So how do you know that what they write is from God? How do we know that the New Testament is scripture? Well, because he authenticated the apostles. And every one of the books in the New Testament except for Hebrews, which we don't know for sure who authored Hebrews. Some people have some question about who Hebrews was written by. But every one of the other books we can attribute to an apostle or someone who knew an apostle and, had a, and worked closely with them. So that's where the writings are coming from. But remember, this, the Ephesians 2 passage says that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. And the foundation doesn't need to be continually built, right? So once the building is established, you don't need to relay the foundation. 
So again, MacArthur and Mayhew say this level of miraculous authentication was necessary at a time when the church was still being established. So they're specifically talking about the New Testament uh, right before the New Testament was written. It was still being established and the canon of scripture was not yet complete. As those who received divine revelation through the Holy Spirit, the apostles and prophets were laying the doctrinal foundation for the church. Revelatory gifts were needed in order to complete that task, and sign gifts were necessary to authenticate their claim to be God's spokesman. Once the apostolic age ended and the New Testament canon was complete, the gifts uniquely associated with the offices of apostle and prophet were no longer needed and passed away. And therefore, apostles and prophets did as well. Uh, now the completed canon of the sufficient scripture stands as its own self-authentication, being the full revelation of the mind and will of God. Okay? So, again, what, to give you the overview of what we're doing here, we're, there's, not a, there's not a slam dunk verse in the Bible that says these gifts ended such and such time. But we're arguing why we believe that they are. Because we believe that there was a particular reason that they were, they were in effect to accomplish a certain task, which they did. And so they're no longer needed at this point. Uh, we also read that you know, during the tribulation, actually it's going to resume. There are going to be prophets prophesying during the tribulation. So this, after Jesus comes back, there's going to be more. Some very, a very, very significant event is going to be happening. I said after, before Jesus comes back the second time. Then there's prophecy again. There's prophets speaking. But until then... Yeah. Um, I guess I want to introduce maybe a particular practical aspect of this. Yeah. Because um, you mentioned in the times, and of course, even now, there are people that will produce signs and wonders to affirm the messengers, right? Yeah. In the same way you did. Um, the Deuteronomy 13, which talks about if a prophet or dreamer comes to you, giving you a sign and wonder, but yet tries to lead you to follow other gods. That, do you see that as an applicable passage to help us discern between something that might look authentic versus yeah. somebody who is still a false teacher, even if what they do is authentic? Sure. Because you could have, you also have like the, uh, when Moses did those signs, he had, they were the magicians who falsified and were able to do counterfeits that somewhat resembled what he did up to a point. And that's, you still have to know, well, that doesn't mean I'm going to follow those people. Right, so, so that's a good point to, to, yeah, to say, well, yeah, we also know what it should be pointing to. Mm-hmm. And if they're pointing to something else, well, it's a false trick or, you know, I mean, some, it depends on your views too in the end times. You know, there's the Antichrist and, and there's a seeming resurrection. And some people believe it's a legit resurrection. And some people believe it's a fake, you know. So it depends on, on, on your view on that. Um, so, you know, yeah. Another thing to think about is that... Uh, and that people do demonic spiritual things so they can use that to produce a hey, look at this, and then say it's for the glory of God. Not necessarily the case. So there, there, it really just depends to some where people who do that and know they can do stage their, their acts. There are people who, will, um, who may actually just be confusing themselves because the one time they did it. And it seemed to work. Uh, something important thing about it, like part of that is, is God's judgment on that church. And so it's important, that's why we talk about these things, to learn to pick up those cues and say, oh, I need to both my feet to step out. And if not, tell the people to stay out. Yeah, and then we have like, um, you know, Deuteronomy talks about if prophets come to you, right? What's, I mean, I'll mention that in a little bit. But when somebody claims to be a prophet and they're giving prophecy, how do you know? And it's like, well, if the thing doesn't come true, they're not from the Lord, right? And so if somebody's claiming the prophecy, you know, the kind of prophecy you're hearing today isn't that kind of, it's not a, you know, it's not 100% prophecy. These people are making all kinds of prophetic claims and then it doesn't happen. And then there's some excuse. And, you know, so they have, a, they have this hit and miss ratio. Well, you're not supposed to have a hit and miss ratio that's anything except 100% hit if you're a prophet of God. So, you know, so you can see it's not the, it's not the same thing. Yeah. Sorry, when we were listening to the service there, uh, talk about in Amos chapter 2, he mentioned what now is there but to prophesy. And it's like, it's, it's like, I'm here to carry out this message. And so uh, I think when, when the New Testament talks about uh, for children who prophesy and have dreams, it's not necessarily like this new revelation. It's what's already been prophesied. I think is what some people are saying. 
to think about. But we're not, we're not carrying out anything new. There's no much new added doctrine. Mm -hmm. It's just as it is our good. Yeah, could be. And then you see, you also, if you look at what was going on in the Old Testament too, and you look at then what did the prophets and what did, what did Moses do and stuff? Well, they wrote books that are recorded in the Old Testament. So they were writing the Old Testament. And then when the Old Testament was done, then there was no need for that. Well, now Jesus comes and now it resumes. We're writing, they're writing the New Testament. Well, now that's completed. So there's no need. <laughs> we have, it, it, you know, it's accomplished. So did you have a hand up, Corey? Just real quick, yeah. Um, in our own family, we dealt with the signs and wonders thing. And, and Amber asked a really wise question to the person. She said, who, who gets the glory for this? And I think that's a great witness test. Because mm -hmm. the Spirit came to glorify Christ. And so that, that's really, you know, as, as I'm hearing all the discussion about this, it, it seems like you could, you could put all this up as, like, what... First of all, what's the ultimate purpose of this, and who gets the glory? Yeah, absolutely. Because the people nowadays who are running around claiming to be apostles and prophets, they're usually self-seeking, right? They're right. seeking fame, glory, power, whatever. Yeah. Okay, um, number three. There are no longer apostles today. Uh, many in the charismatic churches claim to be apostles, but there are no longer apostles since the death of John around AD 100. Um, there are certain qualifications that the Bible spells out for prophets. I think I'm going to have to, in the interest of time, kind of jump over this one, because otherwise I don't think we're going to make it through the rest. But I'll just mention um, prophets had to be physical eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. Um, you'll look that even when they chose the replacement for Judas, that's what they were looking for, right? They were looking in Acts 1 for men who have accompanied them during their time with the Lord Jesus and went out and among them. And one of the uh, men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Um, so they were with them and, they, and then they're gonna, now they're going to be witnesses to the world of the resurrection. And, you know, like, like Paul, you know, Paul, Jesus had died by the time Paul was there, right? But he appeared to Paul, right? And he saved Paul. And Paul saw him. He saw the risen Christ. Christ appeared to him. So he, he, he wasn't in the same way as the others, but he still saw the risen Christ. Um, quality number two was to be personally appointed by Christ. Okay, when you read through, you see that he personally picked and he appointed those who were apostles, um, and Paul says the same thing about himself. And obviously, you know, as you read through how Paul was saved, Jesus personally selected him. And then the third condition was uh, being able to authenticate their apostleship with the miraculous signs of an apostle. And we, we looked at a couple verses on that. I have more there for you uh, if you want to look them up. Interestingly, uh, even Wayne Grudem, the, who wrote this, and he's the charismatic theologian, even Wayne Grudem admits uh, since no one today can meet the qualification of having seen the risen Christ with his own eyes, there are no apostles today. So he would agree with us on that. Um, he's open to gifts being there, but he doesn't believe there's real apostles. Okay? For the same reason, because he would define and understand an apostle the same way we would. So what are all these people who claim to have all these gifts doing then? Who? What are all these people who claim to have all these extraordinary gifts of the apostles doing when they claim to have... Are you asking me? Or is that a rhetorical question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a rhetorical, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I second your rhetorical question. Yeah, what are they doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to know what the definition of an apostle is, because there are other verses in Scripture that says there are other apostles. Uh huh. So. Uh, I wanted just to understand that. So there's so that I, I believe if you go to the word, it means someone who's sent. Okay. Apostle means a sent one. So there's kind of a general use that some people argue it, it could it be used in a general sense, where you're like these are people that are sent. But then what we're talking about is a specific use being used for people that are the foundation of the church there that Jesus is using to. Do, to do the signs and wonders and to present the gospel and to and witness to the world. So it would be, you could almost call it like a, like an kind of like an office, 
right? As opposed to, so you, so you like, it's kind of like how you could use the word deacon and, you, and the word deacon comes from like servant. And there's lots of people that are servants, but then there's actually like, well, there's a, there's a deacon that's a little different than just a general servant. There's actually an office. Um, so that's how I would describe it as that particular like office that goes with prophet. But it could be used in a more general sense to talk about apostles. And there are some, there are some people, if you go through acts and such, we don't know too much about them to say, right? But the, it says apostles, and some of them are in a list with the ones who we normally think of as, oh, these are the, these are the 12, and this is Paul. And there's a few others who are listed. I think Barnabas is listed, and so uh, there's a few others. There are apostles today in that meaning, not as the office. Yeah, as yeah. The... But, there, but if you use it in that meaning, you're just meaning someone who's, who's been sent. You're not necessarily meaning in the sense of those who had the authority of the ones we're talking about, right, of the, of the position, who had the authority in the church, who had the signs to attest to that and were coming from God. So when somebody comes today, if you were just using that in general and saying someone sent, you know, first of all, I'd be a little careful on what I mean by that. Like, that's a little questionable. Like, am I going to say I'm sent by God? I don't, I don't know that I would be comfortable saying that. In that oh, you know? okay. No, so, yeah. Yeah. But the, what somebody normally is claiming, if they're claiming to be an apostle, is I have those abilities and I have authority, so you should listen to me and follow me. That, I mean, that's the claim. It's a claim of authority in the church, right? Because the apostles had authority uh, in the church. And, and, the, and the ridiculous thing is, like, you can go on the internet and you can pay 60 bucks and you can become an apostle and get a certificate to show it. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. oh, I don't know. It's probably, uh, uh, the book Strange Fire probably talks about it. I can't remember where I read about it, but yeah. <laughs> you can get yourself a certificate. Instead of, instead of the miracles and signs attesting to your apostleship, you have a certificate. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the last, uh, the last uh, argument, I think it's the last one, number four on this issue is that uh, what you see today does not match the biblical gifts. So even if you were open to that, like Grudem is, he well acknowledges that what you're seeing out there isn't it. So I'm not sure if he actually thinks he's seen it, or he's just like not, not convinced because there's not that slam dunk Bible verse that says they're over, that he's just like, well, I don't want to rule it out. Uh, but I know like him and John Piper, or at least some of the guys that we respect that are open to that or believe in that, um, but I'm not exactly sure why he thinks that, but he does admit that most of what we see, or as far as I know, all of what we've seen and, and we hear is not, does not match the biblical gifts. Um, so, so what are we talking about? Well, we talked last week about healing, right? For example, healing. If a person today has the gift of healing, why is that person not at a hospital or a cancer center healing every person there? Where were the healers during COVID-19 to heal everybody? By the way, one, uh, one charismatic preacher bound COVID on TV, though. And I don't think it did anything. Yeah. All right. I, I just have a question about how, how you describe this working, these gifts are working, right? Because, like, say the gift of healing. Yeah. But even, even the apostles didn't have the gift. Even Jesus Christ himself, I don't think, had the gift at every moment at every time, right? On command, because he says that it works. I could not do in this place with their own belief. You're getting ahead. What? You're getting ahead. We'll get there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I say he did. I say he did. That's not what's going on in that passage. You're talking about in Nazareth, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. I'll justify my claim. I am indeed claiming that the biblical gift of healing is that anyone brought to you, you can heal them. And, that, and no one can do that. No one can do that today. If they can, why aren't they doing that? Okay. Anyone brought to you, you should be able to heal. Because that's the biblical gift if you read through it. That's my argument. But you're right. I have to justify that. Okay, so, so that, that, is, that is my claim. Is this what we see in the Bible? Okay, so I'm, my first argument is we see that Jesus healed all sicknesses of all people who came to him, including many unbelievers. Okay? Um, that's why... The, you know, they, they cover their bases and they say, well, if you don't believe, and they, do go, they go to that Nazareth, and that's their go-to verse to say, well, see, Jesus couldn't heal everybody. Um, so let's, let's look. Um, this was the, uh, Matthew 4, 
23 to 24. Uh, Matthew 4, 23 to 24. He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria and and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So I contend that's all. All means all. Every person who was brought to him, no matter what they had, he healed them. It says nothing about whether they were believers, right? It doesn't say, it just says they brought all the sick, whatever they had, he healed them. Okay, all sicknesses, all who were brought to him from all over. It doesn't say only those who had enough faith. He healed everybody. Uh, In Matthew 8, a centurion pleaded with Jesus to heal his servant. Jesus commended the centurion on his faith and he healed the servant. Uh, Interestingly, the servant wasn't even there to hear or claim in faith healing. So um, I would argue that, you know, that's another one of those. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with the faith of the person being healed. Okay, he commended the faith of the man who asked for it. But but it says nothing about the person who healed. And for all, probably, most likely, the person who's been healed doesn't even know that this is happening. Uh, Let's go. So Matthew 8, 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. So he healed them all. It doesn't say everybody was brought to him, but everybody who was brought to him, he healed them all. Uh, Matthew 9.35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Okay, so again, there's no indication there's any exceptions to this. He's just going through healing everybody of anything when they're brought to him. Uh, Matthew 12, 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. Matthew 14, 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to, to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Matthew fifteen thirty. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They put them at his feet. He healed them. Matthew 21, 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Okay, again, I mean, you can argue there, but, but basically the point is that there's, none of this is presenting any, any exceptions, right, whatsoever that we can see so far. Um, so what's usually the response? So all, 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 any Everything. Whoever's being brought to him, he's healing everybody. There's no, no exceptions, no issues. So the one place, the one issue, the one verse that people have question on uh, and struggle with is Matthew 13 um, or Mark 6, wherever you want to go in the, in the scripture. So Ma- Matthew 13 talks about when Jesus went to his hometown. Okay, so the charismatic response is Jesus went to his hometown and he couldn't heal everybody because they didn't have enough faith. And that's their go-to verse to prove that you can't necessarily be healed unless you have enough faith. Okay, now first of all, that, that's really not going to work because you're taking one verse and everything else says otherwise. And you go through all the other verses and, you, and, and in fact Jesus was, when he went around and he did all these healings, the actual fact was that most people didn't get saved. Right? Most of them did not get saved. You could think, I mean, think about the 10 lepers, right? He heals the 10 lepers. What, who, who actually got saved in there? One. But he healed the other nine, didn't he? 
So it's not about who, be, who is a believer and who had faith. It's, there's proof in the examples and all the other passages of him healing everybody. So it can't mean that. Right? Yeah. But it can't mean that you have to have faith to be saved. And that he can't save you. That's that, he can't heal you unless you have enough faith. That's not a biblical teaching. He healed all kinds of people who didn't have faith. Okay, and the, ten, the nine lepers are one of the examples. But just in, in terms of everybody's brought to him and he's healing everybody. Well, you know, Jesus was, was, was talking about how there's no faith to be found in Israel. And all these people, right? And then, so you have people he's healing all over. Not all of them are Israelites. But they're not all believers. You know, a lot of the crowds follow him and then they leave him because they're not really believers. They want to get the handout. They want to get the food. And then he gives them tough teaching and they say, oh, we're out of here. Um, they're not real believers a lot of times. So he's healing people that don't have any faith at all. The charismatic teaching says he can't heal you if you don't have enough faith. Or, or the faith healer who claims to have that gift, right? I'm the faith healer who's telling you I have the power like Jesus and the apostles. I can heal you. Come up. You're sick. I'm going to put my hand on you and heal you. And if you're not healed... It's because you don't have enough faith. And then they say, well, if you're going to tell me I have a counterfeit gift, look at Jesus. He couldn't heal when they didn't have faith. And we're saying that's not true because you read all over that he's healing all kinds of people without faith. So that can't be true. That is not what that means. It cannot mean that. Yeah. So a lot of times, you'd have to look through the, through the word study of what, which passages you're looking at. But there's several times that the word that means healed can also mean saved. And so there are times when the people are being saved, right? And there are times when he's just commending people's faith. And he's answering their prayers, right? Like the centurion. He's answering that guy's prayer because he came to him in faith. But he's not restricted where if you don't come in faith... He can't heal you. And that's what the charismatic teaching is. That's the way they excuse that they can't heal you. Okay? Because they say he couldn't either. Yeah. Can I point that back to the parable of the seeds that were cast onto the pathways of the road? Some fell off the rocky parts, some fell by the thorn bushes that were choked out. And all of such were supposed to represent the people who came to see the faith and came to see the testimony, but only one of those three or four examples of the seeds. Yeah, and like if you go to Luke 17 at the 10 lepers, at the end of the 10 lepers encounter, he says, rise and go your way. Your faith has, what does he say? Or saved you. I think it saved you, but it could be healed or saved. But that, the guy who was saved, and that word is sozo, which is saved. So that guy was actually saved, and that's what he's saying. Yeah. Jerry. I think a brother may be referencing Matthew 8, where the centurion um, asked for Jesus to heal his servant. Yeah. And then in verse 13, Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Yeah. But that doesn't happen without Christ actually granting that healing. That healing. Sure. Right? It's, yeah. It's up to God. It's not up to us. It's not yeah, and you'd have to read, I mean, you'd have to go case by case too, because sometimes believe doesn't mean believe in a saving sense, right? Like even we can talk about that. You know, if you can have... That's exactly what I was before I was a Christian. I believed. All my life, as far as I remember, I believed in God, Christ, the gospel. I knew the facts and I believed them. So I believed, but I was not submitted to serving him. I was, I was living for myself, but I always believed the facts. And so there's also even the word believe. You know, did you believe in a saving way or are you believing, you know, who, I mean, who's, who Jesus is, right? The demons know who Jesus is. They believe the facts. Yeah. And you also have the greatest warning in the whole scripture, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not yeah. everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who lives in heaven will enter. Many will say 
cast out demons, mm -hmm. and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, apart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Mm -hmm. So even people who are trying to rely on their gift serving God in a sense, quote unquote, even Jesus warns them, like, no, you're not doing the will of my Father. Yeah. If you're disobedient, if you're, you know, if you're living a life of sin and you're claiming to be of him, yeah. You had a, someone else had a hand up. Corey? Yeah, just real quick. When, when Jesus went back to his hometown and couldn't heal many there, the, the question was raised, you know, that what, yeah. was, that, was that about faith? And you, and you explained that it wasn't. And you said that's not what's happening here. What yeah. Was happening there? Yeah, we're getting there. Yeah, yeah. Oh. We're still heading there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're... we're we're nearly there. We're going there. Okay. Um, but, but anyway, I, I'm hoping that you at least see, see the argument I'm making, which is it can't mean that. Because we saw already all the examples that Jesus was healing. He was healing people who weren't believers. So if you're saying it means that, there's counterexamples throughout that it doesn't mean that. Jesus wasn't limited in, in the ability to do that. So it has to mean something else. The question is, what is it? Right? That's the, that's the question. All right. So, that, yeah, that's our question. Uh, let's actually um, read that just to make sure we're on the same, same uh, page here. Uh, so what does it say? We can go to Matthew 13, um, 53 to By the way, one interesting thing is Matthew 13 is when he starts speaking in parables. Just as a note. Uh, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And I could, that's, so that's kind of like, uh, you, some of you probably ha have had this kind of experience, right? Where you like go back to your family and you're such and such little kid. And who's going to listen to you? Who are you? They all know you. They're all familiar with you. You're, you're just this and they remember you like this. And who do you think you are, Right. Um, that's a common thing. You're a son, you go to your dad, you get saved. He doesn't, who do you think you are to tell me, right? So he's getting this response from, from family, from friends, you know, all these people that are, that are in his hometown. Who, who are you? You're, you're just this little kid that we remember. You're just a carpenter's son. Who do you think you are? And they got offended. They took offense. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So he acknowledges that that's an issue. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Okay, so when you read that one, when you read that account in Matthew, what do you think that says? I mean, what does that lead you to? Does that lead you to say it's because he could not? It sounds like it's a judgment because of their unbelief. Well, let's go to Mark because that's the one that really, that's the one that messes with our brain because Mark says it a little differently. And that's the one we have a hard time with. So it's not really the Matthew account that's the issue. Because if that was it, I don't think we'd have any question. But Mark is the one that leads us to go, hmm. Mark 6, 5 to 6, <clears throat> same, same account, but he, but he says, He could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So that's the one that leads people to say, you know, what does that mean? Okay. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So again, word faith healers, they'll hold this up and say it's proof that Jesus couldn't heal everybody. So I can't either. You shouldn't expect it. I've already argued it can't mean that. What does it mean? I'll give you some theologians who, who have explanations I think are pretty good. Um, R.C. Sproul. It was not that Jesus suddenly lost power when he went to Nazareth, that he became incapable of manifesting the miraculous signs that had already begun to mark his ministry. First of all, Jesus is God. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? 
Rather, the circumstances by which God the Holy Spirit unleashed that power were not available there because there was a judgment of God on the town of Nazareth. In other words, God mostly withheld his power from the stiff-necked people who held Jesus in contempt. So R.C. Sproul would explain it, and in the context of Matthew 13, where he starts speaking in parables as a judgment, he would see it in, in the context of a judgment, and also just what it says about not having faith or, or because of their unbelief, that he was going to do miracles in certain situations, and this was not one of them, and he did not because of that. It was a judgment against them, uh, but not, it doesn't mean he was incapable of doing it. Uh, William Hendrickson, he writes this. He could not perform these miracles because under these circumstances of unbelief and opposition, he did not want to do them. Instead of asserting his almighty power to suppress the people's rebellious stand, he respected their own responsibility for their attitudes and actions and thus did not do it. Okay, I've heard others say... um, also, that he's following the Father's will, and the Father's will was not for him to do that, right? I mean, you go through in the scripture when it says uh, it was necessary, he had to do, it was necessary, it was necessary, it was necessary in Luke, that he had to do this and this because he's following the Father's will. So another argument is he couldn't because it was against the Father's will, and therefore against his will, right? So that, it doesn't mean he was incapable of doing it. Uh, J.C. Ryle writes, This expression, of course, cannot mean that it was impossible for our Lord to do a miracle there, and that although he had the will to do miracles, he was stopped and prevented by a power greater than his own. It can't mean that. Such a view would be dishonoring to our Lord, and in fact would be a practical denial of his divinity. With Jesus, nothing is impossible. If he had willed to do miracles, he had the power. The meaning evidently must be that our Lord would not do any miracle there because of the unbelief that he saw. He was prevented by what he perceived was the state of the people's hearts. He would not waste signs and wonders on an unbelieving and hardened generation. He could not do any miracles there without departing from his rule. According to your faith, it will be done to you. He had the power in his hands, but he did not will to use it. So we have to wrestle with what it could mean. And, And it seems to me as you go through these explanations that these people are basically, they're coming to the same conclusion. They're wording it a little bit differently, but it's like what they're concluding is because of all the unbelief, it's not God's will for this to be happening here. So he heals some and he goes on. And it's a judgment on their unbelief. And so not that he couldn't do it. So again, some are explaining it just like he didn't want to do it. Then that, you know, you're left struggling a little bit with the word could not. Um, And as I said, others explain that like, well, the father's well. And it wasn't the father's well, so he... He was not to do it. He was not to go there and do that uh, for many people because of that. I'm sorry? Well, it was part of it because it had been, I mean, it had been going on since the beginning. It was continuing on. And now he's, now he's saying judgment's coming. You're rejecting me. The judgment's coming. Yeah, I mean, that's just the same. Yeah, it's remained the same. Yeah. Um, I just keep thinking in my head about, like, raising our kids. And, like, as parents, you can give them good gifts. But then when they do something wrong, you still want to give them those good gifts. But we've expressed it to them, like, we can't do this now because you, you messed up. And so, like, we can't, we have the ability to still give them something. Yeah, yeah. But we've expressed it as we can't now. Um, yeah. As kind of like a judgment. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's 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 basically what those commentators are coming to, that conclusion. That it's really it's really saying that it's not his will to work in that way and he's not going to because of the unbelief. All right, one more and then we gotta move on. Yeah. Yeah, and he saved a lot of people who didn't. So, yeah, so we know it can't limit him in that way. All right, um, we're running short on time. So real quick, 
Uh, what about the apostles? Um, Acts 5, 12 to 16, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Uh, it talks about how they were in Solomon's portico and uh, many believers were added to them and they brought the sick, laid them in cots and mats as Peter came by that at least his shadow might fall on some. The people gathered from the towns, bringing the sick and those afflicted and they were all healed. Acts 5, 12, uh, 16. They were all healed. Uh, Acts 28, I think this is the last miraculous uh, occurrence, if I remember, in the, in the early church there. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So everybody comes from that island who's sick, and he heals them. All right, so all of that to say, so our conclusion is then that what you're seeing today isn't that, right? If somebody had that ability, then there should be, they should just set up camp somewhere, you know, and people should just bring them all the sick and they should be healing them. So that doesn't look like the same gift. Uh, We also note that there were signs in the New Testament that the gift was starting to pass anyway. It was starting to cease. Uh, There's a curious passage in 1 Timothy 5.23 where Paul writes to Timothy to no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Which would lead to the question, if there's healers, why doesn't he just tell them to go get healed or heal himself? Right? Why, isn't, why, is, why is he telling him to go drink wine? Why is that necessary if there's someone who can heal? So that's kind of interesting. Where are the healers? Um, there's also Philippians 2, 25 to 27. Paul talks about Epaphroditus, his brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who uh, he, he got really sick. He nearly died. And it talks about how uh, he has been longing to get to them. And he was concerned because they had heard that he was sick and that he almost died. So why didn't Paul heal him? Why did he just let him be sick, let the word pass to the other church so they could be worried about it? wait and find out, and then eventually wait and he heals. Well, why didn't Paul just heal him? Or why doesn't someone else who has healing heal him? So again, these aren't absolute proofs, but it's evidence that it's like, well, something's going on here where it seems like people aren't able to heal like, like, like we've been reading about before this. What's going on? So it seems like that gift is starting to go away. All right, so that was on uh, healing. We're not going to have time to get very far on the rest here. Um, just mentioning prophecy, uh, we meant, this came up earlier, Deuteronomy 18 basically says if, if someone comes with a prophecy and it doesn't come true, the person is not from the Lord. So your criteria for a prophet is 100% accuracy, that's not what we get. I mean we can think of like William Miller with the Seventh-day Adventists and he makes this prophecy and it doesn't come true. And instead of everybody abandoning him as a prophet, they make adjustments, they make other prophecies and and again, it doesn't uh, come true. Um, all right. Uh, interestingly, many continuationist folks will admit that these are not the same, and they argue for a lesser quality or a lower category of gifts. So some people, some of the, some people, charismatics will acknowledge that it isn't the same, and then they'll say, "But there's this lesser." You know, it's like, "Well, I hear from God, but it's not." It's not the same as scripture. It's not prophecy, but God's speaking to me. And they're saying what's lower, but that's kind of like when you say Ellen G. White's lower than scripture, but you're not, that's not actually how you treat it. And then, oh, well, our gifts aren't really quite the same. It's a lower gift of healing. Uh, but then the problem with that is then they've acknowledged right there that what they're doing isn't the same as the biblical sign gifts. So, so it's not the same. You're, so you're kind of contradicting the claim when you're saying all of these things are normative for the church through all history, they should be the same. It should be continuing. It's always been like this through all history. Well, then why do you have a lesser gift now? Why is it changing if it's the same? All right. Um, that clock's ahead, right? <laughs> we're, we're in the interesting situation. I, I have one more thing. and There's maybe not enough time, but there's not enough to do a whole session next week. Yeah. Or I guess we could just we could just do start the next session at the same time and kind of mix it next time.
Uh, maybe we'll just do that. Because I want to talk about spirit baptism. I don't want to rush through that. Um, so, the, so the last part here is going to be on spirit baptism, which is the, which is the claim in the charismatic circles that, you, that basically what happened at Pentecost should be still happening. And at some point, a true believer should have a spirit baptism, not just a water baptism. They get saved. They have a water baptism. But they should have a subsequent spirit baptism in which they speak in tongues is usually the thing. And that's where you see the crazy stuff sometimes in some charismatic churches uh, like Bethel in California, where they're like writhing on the floor, barking like dogs and saying that that's the work of the spirit. Um, so, so, yeah, we'll, so we'll do that. So we'll finish it up next week. It's going to make it hard for the people who put this online, but I guess we could divide it. So the next thing we were going to do after this was talk about, um, talk about common objections. So either we'll do that or maybe I'll put something together for you guys to talk about in groups to kind of use more time if we need it next time. Um, yeah, tell them about the movie. Yeah, so the men got to watch it on uh, Thursday night, I guess, at camp. And then um, there was a plan to show it last Wednesday at youth, uh, at the high school. But for some reason, that, that nobody else was here on campus for other things, and they, they ended up rescheduling. So at some point, I think it's going to be shown to the high schoolers. Uh, but I don't know the timeline of all that. So. But yeah, it is a, it's a, I've heard it's a really good, good movie to watch. So. so I would second that recommendation if you're interested in more on this. All right. Well, I guess we gotta. I gotta I'll let you go. I'll, I'll hang around if you have uh, some questions. I do have to be at a uh, new member meeting at twelve thirty. But let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. Uh, we thank you, Lord, uh, for the grace and mercy that we have in Christ, uh, Lord. And we thank you for your Word uh, that you have given us. Your Word that we might know you, that we might uh, live as you would have us live, that we might glorify you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to do that as we encounter all those philosophies and false religions in the world. Give us wisdom, Lord. We thank you that you promised to grant us wisdom if we pray for it. And so we do, Lord. We ask you for wisdom. We acknowledge that we desperately need it. And we pray that your spirit would be working in us to grow us and working in those uh, who we encounter that, uh, that you might do that work to save them. Um, so thank you, Lord, uh, for, for just uh, your, your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.